we have a few of the sheets uh, for tonight up here in the front. If any of you need them, if you'd raise your hand, we'll see that you get one. Before we begin tonight, I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer. We're dealing with a very serious subject, the subject of Jesus and the demonic. And it's my experience that there is always payback uh, when you deal with this topic. It exposes the enemy of our souls in a way he wishes not to be exposed. What he will do throughout history is either make people so fascinated with him that they lose their fascination with Jesus, or to make them come to the place where we don't take him seriously at all. I suspect that it's the second of those options, that is, the spirit of the secular age into which we have come. I have taught in a Christian university where I suspected that in a department of religion of nine, there were only two of us who took seriously the fact that our lives are lived out in the context of spiritual conflict. Mark will make that clear this evening. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the call to put on the full armor of God every day, to put on every piece with prayer, to learn to handle the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to know what it is to simply stand and see that our God will fight for us. We thank you, our Father, that we have nothing to fear when our focus and our fascination is in the person of the Lord Jesus, for the victory of the cross, for the taking of principalities and powers and subjecting them to captivity through the blood of the cross for the ultimate victory which is ours in Christ Jesus, for knowing that the healing and the grace for which we hunger is surely ours in the person of the Lord Jesus. For all of this, we give you praise this night and deep thanksgiving in Jesus' powerful name, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. And before we take up the serious matter of Jesus and the demonic, by way of review in advance, I wanted us to quickly work our way through the parables of the kingdom in Mark 4. 1 through 34. It's very interesting that Jesus frames the parables with a call to listen, which should in itself be an indication there is often more there than appears on simply the surface of the text. 
The parable of the sower goes like this. The kingdom of God is like what happens to seed when it is sown. There is planting, growth, and harvest. That's the parable. In the interpretation of the parable, Jesus makes it clear that the act of sowing corresponds to his preaching of the word. How easy it is to dismiss the significance of preaching. What could possibly come from the proclamation of the word of God? And so it was in the day of Jesus, what could come? from the proclamation that the kingdom of God had drawn near. It looked like such an insignificant disturbance. But what Jesus says is that the announcement that the kingdom of God has drawn near, as insignificant as that sounds, sets in motion the effect that will bring the kingdom in its fullness. Sure, there are obstacles, and the parable gives attention to them, but be absolutely certain there is planting, there is growth, and there is harvest. Now, the key to this parable is the fact that in Palestine, sowing preceded plowing. Just the opposite of what we do. We prepare the soil, then we sow the seed. We plant. But in Palestine, planting preceded the preparation of the soil. So when the seed is thrown upon the path, that's because the path is going to be turned over by the plow. When it's sown on what looks like good ground, but is actually a very thin layer of topsoil under which there is limestone, why, that's not revealed until the plow comes along. And so the plants can take no root. And then you sow in some areas, and thistles and thorns come up and choke the plants. But be absolutely certain there will be a harvest. The kingdom of God will come. God's sovereignty will be imposed. His absolute claim upon us will be asserted in an absolute way. And there will be fruitfulness. 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, what about the parable of the lamp that comes? I'd like to suggest that the NIV does not help us. When it translates the Greek text as if it were the parable that is found in Matthew and Luke, I'll read to you the NIV. Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp? to put it under a bowl or a bed. Instead, don't you put it on a stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Once again, 
the call to listen carefully. But I'd like to turn from that translation, which is normally a very fine translation, to the Greek text. And this is what it says. And he was saying to them, Does not the lamp come? Or does the, I'm sorry, does the lamp come in order to be placed under a bushel basket or under the couch or the bed? Does it not come, does he not come to be placed upon the lampstand? And then for whatever is hidden, why that so that it might be manifest. There is a Christological parable here. The word about the one who comes is a word about Jesus. Jesus is explaining why has he come. He is the light. He has come, and you can be absolutely certain what he has set in motion will come to full fruition. And it's a sad thing when the article, which is before the lamp or the light is not translated and where the verb comes is not picked up. Does the lamp come in order to be placed under a bushel basket or under the bed? Absolutely not. Does it not come that there might be illumination in the whole house? Absolutely. Be certain. What God has set in motion with the coming of Jesus, that will be accomplished. The next parable is an interesting one. I call it the parable of the fertile soil. It's the parable how a farmer goes out and he scatters his seed in the field. It is plowed under. He goes home and he sleeps. He gets up. He sleeps. He gets up. He sleeps. And growth takes place. And the parable says, and he doesn't know how it takes place. Now, if you've had a small child who's come home from kindergarten or first grade with a coffee can in which a fine nasturtium seed has been planted, and all children seem to go through this, Well, you might have a child who takes his finger and after a day or two is playing around in the soil to see if anything's happening. And of course, after a while, the seed will grow. Well, the key to this parable is found in verse 28 where the Greek text says, automate, from which we get our word automatically. Automatically, the seed grows. That is, God has put life within the seed. And once again, the planting of the seed is the proclamation of the word that it is filled with life. You can be absolutely certain it will accomplish the purpose for which God has sent it into the world. Finally, the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus uses a common rabbinic statement The mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. 
Now I've heard New Testament scholars getting together and say, you know the banana seed is smaller than the mustard seed. That, that wouldn't have meant anything to the Galilean farmers. They didn't have bananas in Galilee. See, we're not to be foolish in these matters. But the whole point is, the smallest seed produces a great stalk, a great bush under which the birds take shelter. In other words, you, could, you have a very small beginning, but be certain that the outcome will be glorious. And then simply the point that this is a sampling of Jesus' parables as we read in verse 33-34, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, a mashal. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything to them. Now, I gave you an assignment to see what kind of contemporary parables could you come up with to explain what is unknown, the kingdom of God, to people in Franklin, Brentwood, Nashville, all around who know nothing about the sovereign claim of God upon their life. And some have been given to me, and they're very good. But one who gave me a sheet said, you know, this is a harder task than it sounded like. Now, Jesus, being a man without sin, was obviously full of intelligence, but I've come away with a fresh appreciation of his mind as I've contemplated the parables. Listen to this. The kingdom of God is like a woman making a pitcher of tea for her dinner guests. She adds a small amount of sweetener to the tea that sweetens the whole picture. Very good. Again, the kingdom of God is like a man treating a swimming pool. He adds a few chemicals that are worked into the water to purify the whole pool. The kingdom of God is like a man looking intently for a wife. When he meets a woman of unusual strength and beauty, he gladly abandons his search and pursues that woman that he cherishes. <laughs> the pearl of great price, you see. Very good. The kingdom of God is similar to a man building a house. He selects lumber, calling out the bad and weak boards, and using the good to frame up the house. Very, very clever. The kingdom of God is similar to a woman shopping for peaches. She picks through the pile of peaches, taking the good fruit and passing over the bad fruit. The kingdom of God is like water skiing. First, the skier jumps into the water and fits the skis to his feet. After grabbing the rope, most beginning skiers attempt to stand up on their own. They usually fall. They only learn to ski when they learn to lean back and depend on the power of the boat to pull them. Wakes come when the water is disturbed. 
This causes bumps in the path. The trick to maneuvering the bumps is to bend the knees. As long as they keep their knees bent in a, or their knees in a bent position and depend on the power of the boat for strength, they can ski through almost any waters. Bumps come, but with bent knees, they will be able to reach their destination successfully. <laughs> and one more. The kingdom of God is like a classroom for dysfunctional children. There was a godly teacher and ten dysfunctional students. There was a code by which they had learned to live. That code said, you do not strike another student. But one of the boys, Ryan, struck another boy, and so the punishment had to be imposed. The teacher spoke to Ryan. Do you understand that you have broken the code? And he said, yes. I'm going to tell you what I'll do. I'm going to ask if any one of the ten will take your punishment, which is suspension. Is there anyone among you that will take the suspension? Not a hand was raised. The teacher then said, I will take your suspension. I'll go out into the hall. And the money I would have earned teaching you, I will give up for this afternoon that you might know how deeply I care for you. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Wonderful. All right. Now we get to the real stuff. Mark's understanding of Jesus in the realm of the demonic is clear. In the material we've already reviewed from Mark 1.12 through 3.20. You remember that Mark's summary of the gospel is Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he is tested by Satan for 40 days. He was with the wild beasts, part of the whore with which the wilderness is fraught. And he was sustained by divine help. The angels were there to assist him. We know from that summary that the gospel is going to be about Jesus who goes into the wilderness to identify with the people in need of repentance. And that he will bear the burden of judgment that ought to have fallen upon us. He will be tested throughout his ministry, to seize the crown apart from the cross. That's always the essence of the testing. He will be with the wild beasts, but he will be sustained by divine help, and he will be triumphant. Now, the first account of an exorcism 
in the Gospel of Mark is exorcism through the powerful word of Jesus. And it takes place in the synagogue at Capernaum in 123 to 27. And that indicates that the message of the kingdom is going to be advanced in the presence of resistance and conflict. Because even in the house of God, even in what we call the sanctuary, there will be a demonic presence. And what astounded and stunned those who had gathered for the Friday evening service was that the word of Jesus was authoritative, even in the realm of the demonic. And then in one of the passages that we looked at last week, you have the interesting account of the binding of the strong man. Take a quick look at it. The biblical scholars from Jerusalem had an opinion about Jesus. We read of it in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and he spoke to them in riddles. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. But it is obvious because of demonic possession, his end has not yet come. In fact, Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. In that little parable, the strong man is Satan. Jesus was carrying off the possessions of Satan when he set men and women and children free that had been possessed by evil spirits. He is the one who ties up. He is the one who overcomes the evil one. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It is not in the fact that we bind Satan in Jesus' name. It is that Jesus is the one who binds Satan and we are protected and sheltered in Jesus. The whole point of Mark is that what takes place on the plane of history has cosmic repercussions. It is a reflection of what is at the heart of everything, the conflict between Satan and God. There is an African proverb that's worth remembering. Never attack a lion. Only attack its cub. Well, we can understand that all right. Suddenly the doors at the back were to open up. And a great lion 
were to spring down this aisle. I say, quick, everyone around me! <laughs> We'd all be in trouble. Real trouble. But if someone coming in late opened the door and in comes a little lion cub, why, you would pick up that lion cub and he would snarl and put out his claws and his hair, rise up on his... And you would say, isn't he cute? <laughs> now, what that proverb means is this. Satan never attacks God directly. He's too wise for that. But he attacks the cub of God, and that's who you and I are. We are the cub of God. We've been made in God's image. So Satan attacks us, and the strongest of us, the most learned of us, the most pious of us, are fragile. There isn't one of us who cannot experience the most precipitous fall. There is no room for arrogance on the part of the people of God. And be absolutely certain, Satan knows the battle is for the heart and the mind. That's why we're told to love God with all of our heart and with all of our minds. And our university campuses are one place where this battle is taking place every day. And don't think for a moment, because your son, your daughter, is at a Christian university, that that battle is not transpiring. The battle is for the heart and the mind. Now, with that as a background, I want to lead you into two accounts that I'm convinced are about Jesus and the demonic. And the first is the account of the storm at sea. You remember it. It's found in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. After a day of teaching in parables, ministering, to men and women like ourselves, Jesus found himself exhausted. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Remember when he taught in the parables, he had sat in a boat so that he would not be pressed by the crowds. And there in a great amphitheater, his voice projected, he had taught them in the parables of the kingdom. And there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be muzzled 
be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The detail that it was evening is significant because there were frequent squalls on the Sea of Galilee. But the Sea of Galilee is like a great basin because you have mountains all around it and it's like going down into the basin. And the squalls that came at night were unusual, but they were also the most ferocious. Jesus, exhausted, asleep on the coxswain's pillow, meant in essence the disciples were left to their own resources. And whenever that happens in the Gospel of Mark, you find them in deep trouble. And so it is with us. Don't you doubt that for a moment. When we are left to our own resources, we are in deep trouble. Satan saw an opportunity to overturn the whole redemptive plan of God. If he could swamp the boat, if they could drown, then the cross would never be an eventuality. The redemptive death have never been accomplished. And I believe he saw an opportunity that he laid hold of. Why do I think Satan was involved in this? Because of the term that Mark uses, particularly in verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, be muzzled, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now that word, rebuked, is an unusually strong word in the Gospel of Mark. It always occurs in the context of the demonic. Jesus rebukes the demonic spirits that are seeking to be so destructive of what God has intended. That term will reoccur when we take up next week the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. Or it'll be the following week, I guess, uh, where Jesus is rebuked by Peter. I believe Peter is saying, to Jesus, you have a demonic spirit. You have become possessed. It is a very strong term. It is always used in a personal context. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves because there is a demonic spirit. And this translation I've given, be muzzled, comes right out of the repetition of the word in the synagogue of Capernaum. In Mark 1.25, Be muzzled, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit 
shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. It is a very strong word of command. We have left, when we leave this account, Jesus' powerful word. And then his probing question, have you no faith? Now, when those disciples rudely awaken Jesus and said, don't you care, we're going to drown, remember they are professional seamen. They know what squalls are all about. But this squall was of a different character. This squall was definitely life-threatening, so that professional seamen were terrified. And Jesus shows in the presence of this demonic spirit that there is nothing that can thwart the redemptive purposes of God. No wonder the disciples were stunned, were alarmed. Who is this? Why, even the wind and the waves listen to his voice. We know who he is. This is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that's the transitional narrative that brings us into the most graphic account of Jesus and the demonic in the whole of the Gospel of Mark. And why Mark 5, 1 to 20, is an account to which we ought to return again and again whenever the subject of Jesus and the demonic comes up is that it makes absolutely clear what are the purposes of demonic possession. Well, we've heard missionaries come back from third world countries and tell us what it means to encounter the demonic in Indonesia, in mainland China, in equatorial Africa. But in the 1960s, pastors who went to seminaries that paid almost no attention to this dimension of the gospel suddenly found themselves confronted with demonic phenomena in their own studies, it was the most alarming development on the scene of American Christianity. Now, the 1960s was also the period of the neo-charismatic movement. Beginning in St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Seattle, a church in which I was privileged to preach, the Spirit of God swept across this nation. At Notre Dame, one of the great Roman Catholic institutions of the land, you suddenly had priests and nuns and those who were teaching on the faculty meeting for Bible study, singing hymns of praise and coming into charismatic experiences they had never experienced before. In pulpits that had been rank liberal, that had been reduced to ritualized formalism, you suddenly had holy spit fire. You see, whenever Satan begins to be active, God 
becomes very proactive for the church. The church is a wonderful place to be in the presence of the demonic. Now, why were the 1960s the period where all of this transpired? Because suddenly there was a great deal of, of experimentation with mind-expanding consciousness-expanding drugs. There was the rediscovery of witchcraft, Satanism, on the corner, on the cover of Life magazine, on the cover of Time magazine, Anton Levy, the founder of the Church of Satan. I remember an article in Look magazine, 1971, witchcraft, black and white. There was suddenly a resurgence of paganism and experimentation with drugs and experimentation with the dark side of reality gave Satan a foothold that he had never enjoyed in this land because of the powerful preaching of the gospel for some 200 years. And God graciously responded with fresh breath of the Spirit sweeping across the land. Now, it was very controversial because people who ought not to be manifesting all kinds of spiritual gifts suddenly were. And it was found to be disruptive in some instances. After all, the purpose of the Spirit of God is to create unity among the people of God, and we are to guard that unity. But we must never quench the Spirit. Let's take a look at the healing of the demoniac of Gerizah. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines. When we entered that region, ancient Gerizah, we are entering pagan territory. The presence of a swineherd reinforces that. This is certainly not Jewish territory. There were no restraints on the works of evil through the preaching of the Word of God. We have some remains at Gerizah. Modern Kersah, which is the site at this present time, is actually rather level. But only one mile from Kersah, you come to an area where there is a hillock and about a 40-foot slope that slopes down toward the sea. And two miles from there, there are subterranean caverns that served as burial places for the dead and where there are signs that the poorest people of the district live. Now what Mark describes in the first part of this account is the wretched condition of a man the center of whose personality has been taken over by a multitude or a multiplicity of demonic forces. There is such a disintegration of his personality that they speak through him. And what Mark does for you is he describes what the disciples saw. 
it was a shocking sight. The man had seen Jesus come from a distance. He shrieked, and the shriek cut through the air. His eyes were blazing. His hair was long and matted. He was absolutely naked. And he comes running toward Jesus. This is the wild, violent man who lives in the tombs that everyone at Karazan knows about. My guess is, when your children began to act up, you'd say, do you want me to turn you over to the violent man of the tomb? No, no, Mama, I'll be good. Everybody knew about this man. He had come into the town. And the townspeople, afraid of him, had tried to chain him down with iron chains and he broke the fetters. They had tried to hold him down. No one could hold him. Seemed to have the strength of 20 men. And so they drove him out. They regarded him as an animal, not as a man. And one of the remarkable aspects of this account in Mark 5, 1 to 20, is that seven times in the account, Jesus speaks of him as the man. You see, there is no distortion in society. There is no one, no matter how radically evil, how morally evil, how naturally evil, behind which there is not a man, a woman, or a child for whom Jesus cares. And if Jesus cares, I must care. And that's why Jesus led the disciples toward that man. Every detail emphasizes his wretched condition. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. He broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. What is this all about? Here is a man who experiences such a wretched existence, he tries to take his own life to put an end to that existence. It is a horrible description, and it helps you to understand that every one of us who has been created in the divine likeness according to creation, that we might reflect God in his creation. Every one of us, if we have any beauty, any attractiveness, any magnetism, anything that brings people to us, it is because we have been created in the image of God. And we confront this man. And what do we see? We don't see a man at all. 
the first purpose of demonic possession is to distort the image of God in which we have been created. Now, what's taking place in what follows? Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. When he falls on his knees, this is not an act of worship. When I stand in the presence of the Lord, I expect to fall upon my face. It will be an act of abject worship. I long to look into his face. But this was not an act of worship. What is taking place is a defensive posture in the presence of a powerful opponent. It was believed in the first century and much earlier that if you knew the precise name of your enemy, he was in your power. I know who you are, Melvin Spain. You are in my power. Now you understand why Jesus says, be muzzled, be quiet. See? He has no authority in the presence of Jesus. But son of the living God is not a messianic title. It is a divine one. And how ironic that he asks Jesus to swear by God, the most powerful name that he knows, you will not torture me. These are the demons who speak through this man. And the fact that his personality has been so destroyed that the demons are able to speak through him and he has no sense of his own identity, there is such a disintegration, helps us to understand the extent of the distortion of the image of God. And what he is saying in essence is, what business do you and I have together? You see, the demonic presences know there is a time appointed for their destruction but it is not yet. So why have you come at this moment? Why do you interfere with us? But Jesus has come to bring the salvation of the Lord. And Jesus said, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion. See, the most powerful expression perhaps the demonic presences could come up with. For we are many. My name, we are many. There, there is a confusion between the singular and the plural. That indicates the degree of disintegration that is there. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them. He begged Jesus not to send them out of the area. Now, the second purpose of demonic possession is made clear in verses 11 to 13. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Unclean spirits 
request that they might go into an unclean host. And he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out of him and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. There's the second purpose and the ultimate purpose of demon possession. To destroy their host. And Jesus, knowing that the time of ultimate redemption was yet in the future, gave them permission to go into these unclean animals, but he would not permit them to continue in a human host. You see, he cares. He cares. Now, the full extent of the salvation he brings is so graphically portrayed in the verses that follow. Those tending the pigs, the swine herds, ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened, probably the owners of the herd. When they came to Jesus, here it is, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. He who had run recklessly, restlessly on the hillocks so that when the moon was full, you would see him posturing as he ran across, shrieking his hair, sticking out dirty, filthy, an animal in our vision. He who had tried to do anything to end this wretched existence is sitting there calmly. He who had run naked and destroyed everything that had been given to him is now fully clothed. And he who had all of the marks of disintegration is in his right mind. And the tragedy is that the townspeople were more concerned about the loss of the swine than they were with the redemption of this formerly demon-possessed man. They were stunned. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Of course, it affected their wallets. That was what was really significant to them. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You see, you've got to deal with Jesus. And they recognized that in the presence of Jesus, they were in the presence of a person such as they had never encountered before. And so, are you and I. That Jesus is not some divine man, frightening, becomes clear in verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Make me one of your disciples. It is the response of gratitude. Jesus did not allow him 
He knew that his ministry was in this phase to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he said to him, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were alarmed. I want to call special attention to the practical reflections that come to my heart as I think on Jesus and the demonic, and let's simply work through them quickly ourselves. One, recognize spiritual conflict as the context in which our lives are lived. This underscores the seriousness and the urgency of unwavering commitment to Jesus. We are so relaxed in our Christian commitment. And restore to the liturgy the renouncing of Satan in all of his works. That goes back to Martin Luther. Not only did you ask the person who said, I wish to follow Jesus, do you acknowledge the lordship of Jesus? Do you recognize God raised him from the dead? But also, do you renounce Satan and all of his works? And in those circumstances, it is necessary to recognize spiritual conflict too. Do not play with spiritual realities. Do not expose yourself to the occult or to so-called consciousness expanding drugs. Do not go to films that are designed to assault your senses. Avoid becoming fascinated with evil and the dark side of reality. That's an especial warning for our young people. Three, enthrone Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life every day. Focus your fascination upon him. Love the Lord fully and unashamedly. Four, learn the power of prevailing prayer. I like the expression, take hold of the horns of the altar, the place of refuge. Satan fears the earnest, sustained praying of God's people. Five, pray every day for the protection, discernment, godliness of your pastors. Love them for their acceptance of heavy responsibilities and express that love through prayer. You do not know the heaviness of the burden that they frequently carry on our behalf. Love them and express that love through prayer. Six, if you believe that you or someone you know is the object of demonic oppression or possession, seek pastoral counsel and help. Dealing with the demonic is not ordinarily the responsibility of a layperson. And seven, cultivate a strong confidence in the sustaining power of our sovereign God who will protect you and sustain you in your walk with him. Take these home. Think about them. Read them for seven days in a row. Act upon them. And to God be the glory. 
Let us pray. Our Father, this is serious business. We thank you that Mark, recognizing that a government had become demonic in targeting the church for martyrdom and abolition, that Mark exposes for us that the purpose of demonic possession is to distort the image of God and ultimately to destroy the image bearer. Protect your people. Thank you for the victory of the cross. Thank you for the power of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection and for resurrection power. Now, Father, guard our pastors. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Fill them with discernment. Bring to maturity their godliness and their piety. And let us love them and support them and lift them before the throne of grace every day. Thank you for their labor of love in our midst. Now, Father, seal to our hearts what you have taught us this evening and to the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus and for the Lord Jesus. We utter our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You are listening.